Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. With all that's going on in the world, we're going to now look at another aspect that is ramping up. And that's dealing with the movement towards global supra-religion, or what the Bible calls the whore of Babylon, that's rising. So with all those factors that's going on today in prophecy, this is another aspect that's creating quite a problem in the world. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation 17. Revelation 17, we're going to, have to spend some time on, and Revelation 18, it, it'll take quite a while to get through it because there's a lot for me to unpack in this. And I can't assume that everyone just has the background for this. And so a lot of you guys that come on my Wednesday night, I might repeat myself a little bit, but you've got to remember there's a lot of people who have not been exposed to Revelation 17 and 18 in depth where I'm going to take it. It's imperative for us to know the background of the whore of Babylon and what she entails, what she means, because she's here. She's with us right now in America and around the world. And the whore of Babylon is a satanic system. It's a man-made religious system that started in ancient times. It was demonically, satanically inspired, but is carried through even till today and has infiltrated the church. The whore of Babylon, and this is why it's pertinent for you and I, is seeking to destroy you. She's trying to get into your house. She's trying to get into your family. She's trying to get into your personal life, and she will do everything she can to invade you. And if she's successful, she will then control you. The issue with the whore of Babylon is she seeks control. And you say, well, I'm a Christian I thought, if I'm a Christian, I'm safe from her. No, you're not. That's why there's so many warnings throughout the New Testament warning us of apostasy. Because what she will attempt to do is get you to apostatize and get you to fall from what you believe into some error. She can't take away your salvation if you've been saved, but she can get you into error. And you say, well, what's behind that? Well, the issue is then if she can get you into error, she can get you ineffective for the kingdom. If she can get you on doing other things that are not really God's agenda, then she has effectively taken the salt out of the salt, so to speak, the saltiness out of the salt. She's extinguished your light and put it under a bushel. That's what she seeks to do. So when you study the whore of Babel and understand she's right here with us, And what she does is try to corrupt our belief systems about Jesus, about God, about the Bible, and most of all, about reality. Because if she can change your mind about God, or tinker with it, or change your mind about yourself and what the Bible says about you and reality and, and whatnot, then she can put you into an alternative state of reality, and then you will go into an area that you won't come out of. It is very scary As a pastor, I must tell you this. I have watched dozens and dozens of people fall off the theological wagon. It is no joke. I have watched people ruin their lives by false theology. I've seen people do stupid things with their lives because the whore got a hold of them. 
the whore got a hold of their spouse. The whore got a hold of one of their kids. And then they go off the rails. And you must understand, it's not just simply theology. It will affect the theology of the individual, but the theology then is linked to the behavior of the individual. And inevitably, what will happen is, once they get off on a false tangent, a false state of reality, you will see it in the behavior of the individual. And what will happen is they'll get into this alternative state of reality. And what I mean by this is they won't function correctly. You won't be able to talk to them anymore. They're on a different narrative. They're on a different path. And they're believers and stuff, but they don't seem to make sense anymore. It's kind of like the story, if you recall, The Emperor's New Clothes by Hans Christian Andersen, if you remember that story. The fable he wrote makes so much sense. If you recall the story, some shucksters, some heisters, or whatever you want to call them, came up to the king and said, we have the ability to create the finest clothes for you, and everyone will adore you when you wear these clothes. And these hucksters said, we will weave it so fine, it's so delicate, that you won't even be able to hardly see it. You won't be able to hardly feel it when we put it on you. It's, it's such an exquisite clothing line that we can make. And so the king bought into that, right? And if you recall, he paid a handsome price for this. And they said, oh, you will be the proudest individual to wear this. And you walk around the kingdom and everyone will praise and adore you for the clothes that you wear. Well, anyway, he paid them the price, the high price. And they came to him and said, yeah, put this on. He couldn't see it. He pretended he could see it. And he says, King, it's really hard to see, but you can, you can you put it on. And it, it's just amazing. It's so fine. And really what he did, he stripped off his clothes down to his nude body. And then when he had these fake clothes on, as you remember, he walked through the city, prancing through the city, having people try to admire his clothes. But everybody was afraid to say something. Because they, if he, they said he didn't have any clothes on, they were put down. And he walked through the city streets with no clothes on. And eventually some little boy said, the emperor has no clothes. And he was the only one to say that. And then eventually everyone started saying, yeah, he doesn't have any clothes on. He doesn't have any clothes on. And that story that Hans Christian Andersen wrote is apropos for what's happening today. Christians are walking around with no clothes on, so to speak. They think they have it all together. They think that the whore hasn't touched them. But as you can see with the Laodicean church, what did Jesus say to the Laodicean church? You're spiritually blind and you're naked. You've lost your clothing. Clothing represents the righteous acts of the saints, according to Revelation 19. Not salvation, it's righteous acts of the saints in discipleship. And right now, as we speak, there are hundreds of thousands of Christians walking through churches spiritually naked like the king, having no clothes. But they think they're wearing clothes. They think they're doing good things. They think they're on the right track. They think they have a great marriage. They think they're raising their kids the right way. And they're totally blind to what the whore has done to them and their lives. And if anyone has the guts to point it out of saying, hey, you have no clothes on, they get angry. They get offended. They get mad at you. And we can see that in our culture today, right? You tell one of these snowflakes that, hey, you're wrong. And what do they do? They want to beat you up, right? They get hostile. They get mad at you. They get angry at you. 
And so we're seeing a world where they're walking around nude and they don't realize it. That's what the whore will do. Now, let me give you some distinctions before we get into the scripture. The whore is teaching the whole world and has taught for a long time, ancient, but it's teaching even Christians today that all roads lead to God. If you want to be a Buddha, go ahead. If you want to be a Hindu, go ahead. They all lead to God, is what the whore says. She seems nice because she'll say everyone is saved in the end. There is no hell. Salvation for the whore? Earn your way. Do good works. Be a good person. And then God, as the doting grandfather or the Santa Claus type of God that she creates, will let you in. And you can basically define God any way you want. It's up to you. It's your personal preference. Designer. He's a designer God. Make him into your image she says. And experience, and basically religious experience is the key, as long as you feel good about this. As long as you come to church and you have a liver quiver, then that meant you had a spiritual encounter with God. Perhaps the music did it for you. That's why they play 45 minutes of music in some of these churches. Their morality, well, it's the opposite. Immorality is champion. Do anything you want to do. It's your call. Who am I to judge, she will say. She won't tell you how your life will end, though. For her economics, it's about equality. Redistribute the wealth. Give everyone a living wage. Even if you don't work, you deserve a living wage. Because she wants to be nice. We'll feed you if you're lazy, she says. There's a divine spark in you. All religions are equal, and all cultural customs are equal too. So we need to champion that, except for biblical Christianity. And the idea is that if we don't get our way, we're going to enforce this through global governance and laws. She seems nice. She seems tolerant. But she hates biblical Christianity. She hates the Jews. She hates any Bible-believing Christian. She hates anyone that would take the Bible literally. She hates the fact that you believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation and that everyone that doesn't is going straight to hell. Well, that's intolerant, she'll say. Fundamental Christianity is bad. Israel doesn't have a right to have the land, she'll say. She'll say, believing in prophecy is bad. How can you be part of the tinfoil hat brigade? You should be ashamed of yourself for saying the world's going to end in Armageddon, she'll say. Your nationalism, she says, globalism is the answer. You're wrong, she'll say. Open borders is the key. And your biblical view of economics, she hates. She'll say capitalism or the free market is for greedy people. You got to be ashamed for that, she says. Oh, yeah, you know she's here. She's here. She's in our politics. She's in our culture. She's ruining America, by the way. She's ruining the churches. She's getting people off the path. If she can't get you to sin, she'll just get you distracted. She's an octopus. Her tentacles in all parts of life. She's here. Now, what you're going to see in Revelation 17 is you're going to see the religious aspect of her. Revelation 18 is the political and commercial aspect. Notice the three things that are tied together, religion, politics, and economics. Did you catch that? 
So when you have somebody, other Christians, say, well, you're getting too political, so-and-so, or your pastor's too political, well, guess where the whore's at? Politics, economics, religion. If you don't have a pastor that's hitting those three issues, you have no counteraction to the whore of Babylon. These pastors who want to ignore what's going on in the world, politics, economics, are giving their people over to the whore because they don't know what's happening to them. And they're being taken in this tsunami where she's taking tons of Christians down. We'll explore a few things today. I will go as slow as possible so you can catch where I'm going with this because every verse is, the way I see the book of Revelation, it's a hyperlinked book. Every verse points backwards to the Old Testament or somewhere in the New Testament. Every verse is hyperlinked. And because it's hyperlinked, we have to go and explore that to understand what John's talking about. And so that's why the book of Revelation is a very difficult book because of the hyperlink, basically, that's going on there. I'll take it slow. If you have questions, I'm always available. But let's start in verse 1, chapter 17. Then one of the seven angels who had seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. So let's unpack that just a little bit. What we have in Revelation 17 and Revelation 18 is what's called a parenthesis. Everything has been chronological up to this point. And what 17 and 18 are doing is stopping and saying, wait, hold on. Amongst all these judgments that were going on, a multiple of narratives were happening at the same time concurrently. And as you see in the book of Revelation, there's multiple narratives stacked on each other. This is just one of them. This narrative was going on in Revelation 17, the first half of the tribulation. Chapter 18 is the second half of the tribulation. So we're going to look at the first half, go back, we're going to go back to the first half of the tribulation, and and John's going to be shown what was going on during the first three and a half years. Now, here's what you have to keep in mind. If this was going on in full force for three and a half years at the beginning of the tribulation, guess what? Prior to that, there must have been a buildup of her. There must have been a table setting of her to get her to this full-fledged, I'm in control of the entire world. So what you and I are seeing now today in the culture is the buildup of her power. She is emerging, and she is taking country by storms. I mean, there's no, no hesitation on her part. The table is being set for this time period. We'll explain that. Let's talk about her characteristics. Number one, if you see her, she's called the great harlot. The idea of a harlot is always a picture in the Old Testament of spiritual adultery. God would always accuse Israel when they went to other idols and false gods and false religions that they were involved in spiritual adultery because they had went to a harlot, a prostitute. Now, The harlot metaphor is basically a metaphor for the false religious system. That's what she is. And she's given the idea of a prostitute. Why? Because if you understand the nature of a prostitute, they take what is legitimate, sex, and pervert it. That's the idea. A prostitute uses sex for money, right? She perverts it. 
Sex should be between husband and wife in marriage. So so she takes something that's legitimate and perverts it. Okay, the whore then takes something that's legitimate and perverts it. That's the idea that you've got to follow what John's trying to say. That's why the term harlot is given to her. Now, okay, what is she taking and then perverting? Well, she's taking religion and perverting it. Now, you and I know in Christianity that Christianity is not a religion per se. It's a relationship with the living Lord of the universe. But James, in the book of James, will remark about what true religion is. And you can see this in James chapter 1, verse 27. And so you have to understand this a little bit to understand why she uses religion. What is the true purpose of religion? Well, the true purpose of religion is not to gain salvation. If you read what James says in, in, in James 1, he'll say to take care of the fatherless and basically orphans and widows. And he uses that as an example of true religion. And you think, what is, where is James going with this? James is taking a specific issue, just one little issue, in what's called discipleship and saying this is what you ought to be doing. Okay, what does he mean? Well, referring to the fatherless, referring to orphans and widows, he's referring to serving, serving the weakest in the church, the most unprotected in the church. Because remember, the context is James, church, believers. True religion, if we can understand what James is saying, is the practice of my sanctification or discipleship and it outwardly coming out in service as Jesus served the disciples when he washed their feet, right? He taught them a service lesson, serve others, in serving the body of Christ. And if I serve anyone outside the body of Christ, I'm to do so for the purposes of evangelism, okay? That's pretty narrow, Most of the admonitions in the New Testament are admonitions to help brethren and sisters in the Lord. That's most of the admonitions you'll see in the letters. It's to help the weaker ones, the poor ones in the church, the fatherless, the widows. We're supposed to take care of each other. That's how it works. The strong take care of the weak. That's how Israel's community was. That's how the church's community was. It does not give the green light for social justice. It does not give the green light toward the social gospel or towards philanthropy. That's not what it's saying. That's what true religion is. Now, hold to that thought. The whore then takes true religion, the outworking of discipleship through servanthood, and perverts it. She takes it in one aspect and says instead of for discipleship, she takes it for salvation, That now that service is for salvation. That you serve others for salvation. Okay? And we can see that in all the cults. All the world religions are like that. You work and serve for what? For your salvation. Whether that's strapping on a bomb and blowing yourself up for the cause of Allah or crawling on your knees in front of the Vatican. Doesn't matter. It's all taking that which is for discipleship and making it a salvation issue. Okay. The other thing she perverts is instead of serving, she lords it over others. 
In Christianity, biblical Christianity, the mark of true leadership is that I serve other people. My job, everything is about serving others. What can I do for others? In her version of perversion, it's how can I lord it over others? How can I control others? Well, give me some practical application about this. What do you mean by this? Look at the hierarchical structures in false religions. The priests or the priest class have all the control. They're the ones who do the top downing and they tell people what to do. So take Islam, for instance. The imams will tell them what to do and they have to follow these imams, right? Or whatever. Take Mormonism. The Mormons have to follow the 12 so-called Mormon apostles in Utah. They have to do what they're told by them. Take the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church has to do what the Pope or the Cardinals or the Vatican tells them to do. It's a hierarchical structure. And then you can even see this in Protestantism. And I want you to see this. It's amazing. Once I got saved out of Catholicism, I came into Protestantism, and I saw the same things with different names. I saw the same hierarchical structures in place. What do you mean? Now, again, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but this is just the reality. Not only do the Catholics, a false church like that, have a hierarchical structure, but so does the Anglican church. So does Orthodox church. So the Episcopalians, and a lot of these are apostate, by the way. And then you go into the more modern-day Protestant denominations, mainline denominations. Lutheranism has a top-down hierarchical system. Their priests make all the decisions. Luther never changed anything, really, in ecclesiastical orders. He just followed the Catholic Church. Most Reformed churches are like this, because Calvin never really wanted to get away from the ecclesiastical hierarchy. He became a pope himself. And so it doesn't shock me that in most Reformed churches, like a Presbyterian church, USA, they have a hierarchical structure. It's a top-down structure. Even in the hyper-charismatic churches, like Bethel, up there in Reading, Bill Johnson is an effective pope, and no one questions him. You can't question him in that kind of arena. No one can question Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland. They have an effective top-down hierarchy. You can't touch the guy. And some of these hyper-charismatics say, don't touch God's anointed. Have you ever heard that one used? Don't touch God's anointed. That's nonsense. That was only used for David and Saul. You're using a king issue for pastors. You're out of your mind. You're supposed to question the pastor all the time. But what it is, it's called Nicolaitanism. And Jesus said, I hate that. I hate hierarchical structures where the priests control everything. Because you know where they got that from? It's straight out of Babylon. The priests control the gate to God, the access to God. And that's exactly what you see in hierarchical structures. The people are dependent on the priest as a mediator to God. And what did Scripture say about the only mediator between God and man? It's only Jesus, right? There's only one mediator. It's the man Christ Jesus. There's no other in between. And yet the whore of Babylon will put intermediaries between there. Whether it's Mary or whether it's the Pope or some 
hyper-charismatic person like Kenneth Copeland. It doesn't matter. It's the same concept. So if you're following me, stay with me. Stay with me. Notice where she sits. She's on top of a beast. I'll explain the beast in just a bit. But she's on many waters. Notice the water. The water concept or metaphor in Scripture, the symbolism behind the water, is it represents the Gentile world. The waters are representative of the Mediterranean. The, actually, Antichrist comes out of the waters. It's typically referring to the Mediterranean. The Mediterranean to the Jews symbolized chaos. But that's where the Gentiles came. It represented the Gentiles and the chaotic world of the Gentiles with their paganism and all the other stuff. Well, the fact that she sits on the Gentile waters represents that she controls the Gentile people in her false religion. That's what's being represented. And she's forming a super religion over people. So this is her final state. This is where she's going. So make no mistake, when you see people pushing the whore of Babylon... We know where this ends. It ends in control of other people. That's where it ends. It doesn't end in liberty. You and I should not be shocked to watch every day in America, we're losing our liberties every day. Because the whore cannot allow you to have liberty. She must take it away. She must get us to be controlled and harnessed, marginalized. That's what she's doing. Go back to the scriptures and we'll see some more aspects to her. With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. Well, let's unpack that. Notice who's fornicating with her. Fornicating means she's having an sexual experience with them. It's using a sexual metaphor to symbolize A union. A union. That's where the metaphor's coming. That she unites herself with who? The kings of the earth. Who are the kings of the earth? Well, just use our modern day language. Politicians. Politicians is the modern day language. With whoever they might be. And we see this today. We see this a lot of times in Europe. They're going along with her. See, remember, she, she doesn't make any qualifications of cultures. Have you noticed that? See, in the Bible, because there's a command, what's called a dominion mandate, to all cultures, all cultures will then be judged based on how well they kept a dominion mandate. And some cultures do well, and some cultures do very poorly. There are still cultures today, think about this, who are in mud huts. Do not think for a moment they're not going to be judged for that. For not harnessing the natural resources over years and years and not building a society like we see in Western society. They're going to be held accountable for that. Oh, but the horse says, that's racism, Their mud huts are just as equal as your skyscrapers. Who in their rational mind would ever think that's equivalent? Who in their right mind would say to people who are sitting on natural resources like oil and coal and gas and 
don't harness the natural resources, which say that's equivalent to America. See, that's what multiculturalism is being taught in our public schools. Not an inclusion of all cultures, but to say Western culture is bad because it's based on Judeo-Christian ethics, and all these other cultures are good even if they're living in mud huts. You know, in some universities and colleges, they have gotten rid of Shakespeare to have a lesbian poet instead of Shakespeare because she comes from a different culture. And so they have gotten rid of Shakespeare, gotten rid of Homer, and the classics, which is the standard for Western civilization. It's one of the, some of the greatest works in history is Shakespeare. But we're going to listen to some lesbian from another culture because her culture, her poem is just equivalent to Shakespeare. Give me a break. But that's what the schools are teaching. Can you imagine that? These kids are not even reading the classics anymore. They have no idea, let alone the Bible. But you're going to eliminate Shakespeare so I can hear a lesbian give her poetry over Shakespeare? Really? We're not going to listen to Bach. We're not going to listen to Beethoven. We're not going to listen to Mozart because those are white Europeans. Oh, that's the whore. That's her message. Because these other cultures are not keeping the dominion mandate, and she knows it. So she puts them on par where God's saying, you're responsible for harnessing the natural resources. You're responsible for the arts. You're responsible for buildings and roads. What was Adam's job in the garden? Just to lay back, kick back under the sun, get a suntan, and have an iced tea on the side? What was his job? Work. Adam, tend the garden. And then what does that imply? It implies he has to tend the garden and harness it for its natural resources to work for him and Eve's benefit. Not the horse. She goes the opposite. Now, what's happening here? These kings are in union with her, doing a deal. And whatever deal they're cutting, they're going along with what she pushes. And notice this. That that union between the politicians and the religious system is causing an intoxication among the people. It says, the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk, intoxicated, can't think straight, irrational, out of reality, different frame of reference. You following? With the wine, what she's producing, what this union is producing, she produces a wine that comes from this fornication, from from this union of uniting the state and uniting the religion together. And when it unites, the people go crazy. What? I'm not following. What kind of union between religion and the state would make people intoxicated? It's got to be one thing. Can you think a little bit deeper? It's got to be one thing. What makes people crazy? You think, well, it's drugs. No, 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 no. You know, it's, it's, it's simpler than that. If I'm, okay, let's just use this and you'll, you'll catch it. If I'm a church and we're a church right here, okay, and we say, you know what, guys? We need to have some more money coming in our budget. Here's my proposal. If I ever do this, you need to run me out, okay? And I'm going to say, hey, guys, and this is just a micro, micro lesson, okay? I think what we need to do to raise more money, because there's a lot of money in this, is we need to have a state-run preschool in our church. 
because it brings in a lot of money. I mean, thousands of dollars. Can, and guys, we could, we could send that money to missions. We could sit, we can hire more staff. We could do more ministry. And, and wouldn't that be great to have a state-ran preschool? What's the problem? I'm marrying the church with the state. And the minute I take any dollars from the state of California, guess what California gets to do to me? They will control me. They will tell me, in your classrooms, you must take the pictures of Jesus down. You can't have religious pictures up. Oh. You can't celebrate Christmas for what it really is. You can celebrate Halloween, but you can't celebrate Christmas or Easter unless you do bunnies and rabbits and pastel colors and and eggs. Now, I'm going to sit there as a pastor saying, guys, this is what they're telling us, but guys... What's the benefit? We're going to have thousands of dollars at our disposal. We can do so much. If we'll just bend here, we'll get the money. Did you follow it? What's the intoxication? It is the money. Wait a second. I know several churches doing this in Kern County. I know. I know. Ain't to burst your bubble. It's the horror Babylon. I'm not against the preschool, but I'm saying, I said qualified it, state preschool. You're taking state money. You're taking their guidance. The minute the church aligns itself with the state, the intoxication is the money. That's what she does. Now we have college campuses, believe it or not, Christian universities, They're in a bind right now, just as an aside. They're in a bind right now. You know why? Because they're taking kids who are on federal Pell Grants and stuff like that that get federal money to go to their schools, and now they got a problem because they're taking federal money. The Christian schools and colleges are in a bind right now, especially those taking federal or state money. And they're at the crossroads because what will happen is if they refuse to go along with the state or the federal government, they're going to get cut off. They're going to get completely cut off. And those universities know they'll go bankrupt because they have so many of their students on federal aid. It's a major problem. But it's the decision you make when you decide to align yourself with the state. It's game over. And that's what she wants. Hence, the problem not only with Israel, but it happened in the church age. The minute... Constantine made Christianity the official religion or at least a legitimate religion in the Roman Empire. And then eventually, by 381 AD, Christianity was the official religion of the Roman Empire. Everything went wrong at that point because the whore had finally got her grip into the church and it aligned with the the Roman church and it was game over over ever since then. I'll show you how that became game over later on. Here's the deal. The way she's going to intoxicate you is through money. Same thing, but on a micro level. Now, here's, here's how it'll apply. Well, Brandon, is she's just going to come up and show me money? Is that what? No, 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 no. It won't be that. It'll be very subtle. You won't see her coming. Here's how it will hit you. 
She's going to make you compromise on some part of your Christianity for some worldly advantage. That if you do this, I'll give you this. And she will have her hand out and it'll be right in front of your face. And you will have to decide what you're going to do. You will have to decide if you will take the bait. Why do you think James in chapter 4 gives a warning to all Christians that those who become friends of the world make themselves what to God? An enemy of God the minute you take a worldly advantage from the whore. The minute you take that advantage, she's got you. And you know who she'll do it through? Your family. You mean she hits below the belt? Yeah, absolutely. She's not going to do a frontal attack. She's going to come to the side. She's going to hit your most precious possessions, your family. And you're going to be put in a spot where you're either going to have to have some worldly advantage to help your family out or you don't help them out and you don't take the advantage, she will put you in that kind of position. She will make you look bad in front of your family. She will, no joke. You will be the black sheep of the family the minute you refuse because everyone around you is going to say, what are you, stupid? Take the money. What are you, stupid? Take the worldly advantage. This would give a great opportunity to so-and-so. How could you, Don't you love your children? Don't you love your spouse? You've got to provide for your spouse. You've got to provide for your family. You've got to provide for your retirement, don't you? Any fool would not take that. What are you, crazy? She wants to put you in that position. No joke, this is serious business. I've seen tons of people being taken down by this. The minute you take something from her, she's got you. She's trapped you. And it will take you forever to get out of it. The minute she's got you, she will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. You didn't plan to stay that long. We just wanted one little slight worldly advantage. Just one little advantage. Because everyone seems to be getting along in life other than me. I just want to take this one little advantage. It was just a little crack. Yeah, that's how she does it. That's how she does it with people. That's how she does it with churches. That's how she does it with whole denominations. In fact, that's how she did it with Constantine. And then it created what we know now as the Roman Catholic Church. The whore of Babylon in her full manifestation in Christianity. Huh. Scary. Verse 3. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness. Yeah. That's where she's located, by the way. That's where her origins are. John is being taken to the wilderness to show this is where she came from. If you go on, on the uh, map here, this area right here, all into this area is called the wilderness. Any, and this is a wilderness part too. Any, we consider it a desert area, right? Nothing there. In the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent, in this area, is where she came from. That's where she's birthed. Now, we're going to go over this later on, probably the next sermon. We're going to go over where her origins came from. But he, he takes John to this area, the wilderness, okay? 
There's a couple of pictures I want you to see. This is what she looked like in her heyday. And you can see the, the, in the Fertile Crescent, in the, the Tigris and Euphrates came through here. There's the Euphrates. Here's the ancient ruins of the location. This is the ancient ruins of where this place was at. And this is where that building right here is where Saddam Hussein started rebuilding the ruins when he was alive before we got him. This picture right here, here's what I want you to notice. This is where it's all going back. Babylon will be rebuilt in its very location. God's going to put it back where it started. But what John is seeing, he says, I want you to see where it started. Because it's important to know its origins. It's important to know the history. It's important to know what it's doing and how it's crept through history and is now affecting the church today so that you can understand as a believer how to see her, how to understand her, how to deal with her because she's here with us. But this is where she comes from. This is the Babylonian area. Now let's return back to the text. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Scarlet, notice the term scarlet beast. We'll talk about that. Which was full of the names of blasphemy. Having seven heads and ten horns. Notice that the beast that she rides, the first thing I want to point out to you is red or scarlet. Okay? There's a reason behind that. Red is a symbol of war and bloodshed in the Bible. So the, the beast that she's on has a symbol of murderous colors. Okay? Satan is pictured as the dragon, a red dragon. And then also um, you have other pictures in the scripture that deal with the color red. And it's always a reference to blood, obviously. Okay? So that's easy to pick up the symbol. So what's, what's it saying? What's the message in that? That as it aligns with the governmental agencies throughout history, it kills people. See, she comes across as some tolerant individual that lets people do whatever they want. But no, when she gets her power, what she does is she kills you if you don't comply. She will destroy you. She, she's following her mandate of her master, Satan, who comes to kill and destroy and lie and everything and steal, right? She, she follows her master. So the red color is always associated to murderous activities that she's always involved in. Okay, so back up in history. When, just in church history, when the church became married to the state, it became murderous. How so? Very slight, but watch this. You have church discipline in the church, right? And you can exercise church discipline, but you, you basically the end of it is that you excommunicate people out of the church when they can't behave correctly. That's excommunication, and that's what you do. You kick people out of the church if they can't behave. Okay. But when you marry with a state, guess what? Church discipline gets married to the military, Church discipline gets married to the police. Church discipline gets married to the guards. And so if I church discipline somebody, all of a sudden now, if you're a heretic or a false prophet or whatever, and I deem you as such, I'm going to burn you at the stake. I'm going to put you on the rack. I'm going to hang you. I'm going to cut your head off if you don't comply. The Catholic Church has been estimated 
that during the Middle Ages, at its height, killed nearly 50 million people. 50 million. They wrote books on this called Christian Jihad. Because the Catholic Church has so much blood on their hands. Protestants are no different in many ways. If you study church history, once Luther and Calvin broke away and they created their own poperies in Switzerland and in Germany, if you disobeyed, you were killed too. By the way, you and I, if we lived under Calvin, you and I would be dead. Luther would have killed us. Just saying. Because the whore had married the church with the state. And if you didn't comply theologically with their construct, you're dead. We had this even in American soil. The Plymouth Brethren came to Massachusetts. And what did they start doing with the witch hunts? Did they not? Start going crazy. Because they felt they had the authority to just start killing people. And so the whore will eventually cause you to commit murder. Look, guys. If you see the vitriolic rampage on our YouTube channels and and stuff, these people would like to murder us. I see their hate. I don't read the comments because of that. We're trying to get the message out. But these internet trolls, there's a lot of hate in there. If they had their hands on you, they'd kill you. I could see it right now. They're at that level. They're at their Antifa level, guys. It's that bad because she's infecting them. She's causing them to want to murder people. And you go, oh, you're over-exaggerating. Am I? Look what's happening politically. Every day they want to kill Trump. Who says that? What kind of rational human being says things like that? It's beyond, but she's here, guys. Notice, though, she rides a beast. The beast, obviously, we've talked about this, and this goes to Revelation 13. This goes to Daniel 7 and 2. And the beast form of government is the last Gentile government that will be here when Jesus comes back. It was here when he first came here, and it will be here when he comes back. It is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire is still with us. You just don't see this imperial flex right now. It's here, and she's using it. And she's going to then be propped up by her. But notice it has seven heads and ten horns. The idea is it's given you the final stage, which is the Antichrist stage. As we have seen, the Antichrist takes the ten king confederation of the entire world. He gets seven to submit to him, and he takes three kings out. Hence, seven kings, ten diadems, with Antichrist in control of the entire government. So basically what you're seeing is the tribulation government of what we would call the one world government, basically. Guess who's in control at this point? Notice the positions. The scripture has shown you the positions of who's in control. It's the governments that are propping her up, but she has the control, the final say. This is very bizarre because most people think atheism is going to rule the day. It's not going to. Because no one buys into atheism or evolution, or whatnot, because when you tell someone you have no meaning in life, when you die, you die, and that's it, you return back to the dust, that doesn't appeal to anybody, because eternity has been put into our heart, according to Solomon. Hence, religion then, or spirituality, will take its place, which it is right now. No one's buying into it. And so, what ends up winning in the day is the false religious system wins the day, and her morality, which is 180 degrees different than God's. 
but they prop her up. Now, why is it from the state's advantage to prop her up and use her? Well, it's simple. Constantine totally understood this, and you study history, of why he used Christianity for his empire. Simple. He figured out that the, the, the majority of people in the empire were all becoming Christian. So he decided, I'm going to use Christianity as the glue to keep my empire together. See, a totally secular state really doesn't work well. You have to have some religious aspect to it in order for people to comply. Just keeping rules for the simple fact of keeping rules doesn't work for people. If that was the case, every cult would have no rules. But what do we find in cults? Massive, massive rules. Why? Because then you can control people. And when you control people by saying your salvation is on the line, heaven and hell is on the line, if we kick you out of this place, you're going to hell, that's an enormous psychological thing which we would make that equivalent to brainwashing. You have to do that and threaten salvation in order to brainwash people. That's why the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses are the experts in brainwashing. Same thing with Islam, an expert in brainwashing. They can't think straight after that because they're keeping rules in order to obtain salvation. Satan has figured that out. So what does he do? He uses false religions to keep people under control. So when these evil kings, Antichrist, whoever, they know this. So what they do is they use religion as the glue that keeps people under control. That's why it's used in that sense. That's why the kings of the earth prop her up. But notice the, the other thing. She has names. Go back to the text real quick. Names of blasphemy. Having seven heads and ten horns. The names of blasphemy it means this. That she is in opposition to God. That everything she does is a complete opposite and in opposition to God. That's the idea behind it. And hence, what are we seeing in our culture today? Everything from the Judeo-Christian ethics down to people's gender is being opposed. Everything. Marriage. What constitutes a marriage? Male, female. All that stuff now is up for grabs, but it's in opposition to God. Now, we've got to stop here. But let's do some application. We'll wrap this up because we're going to continue walking down this line because it starts getting deeper and deeper and the rabbit hole starts getting deeper and deeper. It gets worse. Okay. Application. To the degree that you accept any intoxicating payment for worldly advantage will be the degree that you don't serve Christ. You following with me? Whatever you decide as a worldly advantage, that you want this for you, you want this for your family, you want it, and it gets you to make a financial decision to get further away from Christ, 
to give maybe your kids a worldly advantage, to maybe give you, your spouse, a worldly advantage. Maybe she wants a bigger house. Maybe she wants a better car. Maybe you want a better car. Maybe you want a better house. Maybe you want a pool in the backyard. Maybe you want this. Maybe you want that. And you say, well, there's nothing wrong with that. Yes, unless it takes you away from Christ. The minute she offers that to the degree you take it is the degree you step back from serving Messiah. And everybody in this room has to understand where we're at on that. Introspection is the key. You must be honest with yourself. What am I doing with my life? Am I doing things for worldly advantages? And I'm not saying you, you have to, you, you need, everyone needs to work and do what they need to do and provide. No doubt about that. If you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an infidel. But how much is enough? Where's the line? And only you know where that line's at. Because she's seducing people in Christianity all the time. Please think about this. Marry this with the Laodicean church. What was the number one thing the Laodicean church had? Money. They thought their money was attributed to God's blessing. And then when Jesus gets a hold of them, he rips them up and down verbally for saying, you don't even know the reality that you're living in. You're so out of touch with your own life. You think this is a blessing when it's actually a curse. You're spiritually blind and naked. I advise you to buy gold refined in the fire from me. And I said, so you can see. Wow. Hey, man, no joke. I know this is rough. I know this is heavy. But I only say this out of the heart of I've watched dozens and dozens of Christians totally derail their lives because of this very thing. And they didn't know the whore was there. He was right there with them in their family. I say that out of the pastor's heart. Watch for her. She is looking for whom she may destroy. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.